Who's ready to start a new series? Woo! Yeah, there's a few people. And you're, you're thinking, man, Ecclesiastes is going on and on and on. Time for a new series. Well, we are starting one today. Um, but before we do, I just want to remind you, like I've been saying every week, we are launching a night service this September, September 8th is going to be the kickoff day, 6 p.m. We're so excited about it. We hope you are. Hope some of you are going to attend it. Some of you are going to serve there. And all of you are going to invite your friends, right? I got a text message this week from a woman. She was here in the first service and she said, Matt, I'm so excited. At, at work this week, I talked with two different coworkers and invited them to church and they're going to come check it out. And I was like, awesome. I love getting text messages like that because we're all part of that. The gospel spreads by word of mouth. I don't know if you knew that. So you guys are the way that we spread the gospel, we tell people about our church, we invite them in. So I want to encourage you to all do that because every single one of you is going to invite at least one person for that September date. Okay? So think of that person. You're going to invite them. Got about a month left, right? So think of that person. Who are you going to invite? Okay, well, um, and also, you know, <laughs> it, since I, I get to be up here on the platform, I get a little bit of leeway. Are you guys okay if I, you know, do something that doesn't have anything to do with my sermon? I have permission from you guys to do that. Well, good. I don't know if you guys knew this, but um, my wife, Melissa, and I are expecting twins, um, which we're excited about. Yes. And this week on the ultrasound, they were pretty sure they knew what they were, so we had them write them down on an envelope. And then we called up our good friend, Aaron Chan, who was sitting up here, to come take photos for us. So I just wanted to show you a couple photos so you could find out the genders with us. We were pretty excited Thursday night. So let's watch this little clip. First one was a boy. Wonder what the second one's going to be. We're taking bets. A girl. So thanks for giving me the leeway to do that. I know I'm kind of hogging the stage for a second, but we're excited about it. We're so excited about the gift. Yeah, that's a cool photo, isn't it? So excited about the gift of another um, girl and a boy that we're going to get to have. And so continue to pray for those kids. Okay, so we are in this new series uh, where grace and truth collide. We're going to be in this series just for three weeks. It's a very short series, and then we're going to start through the book of Ruth after that, which is going to be great. Uh, and in order for you guys to just visualize this message and this series, um, I need a couple volunteers. So do we have two volunteers that are bold and brave that can come up to the stage? Right over here, Luke, we got one. If you can come on over here. Can we get one more volunteer from the very back? I can't see your... Caleb, you're number two. All right. So Caleb, Caleb's our drummer. Doesn't he do a great job? If you want to come on up. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you, Caleb and Luke. Great to have you for the last few weeks. This is Luke and Caleb. Okay. So this rope here, this is going to be our tug of war. I asked my friend Joseph, who had a climbing rope, to give us a little tug of war rope. So right on here, we have this yellow side, and this represents truth. So which one of you is the truth guy? (laughs) <laughs> Luke, all right, Luke's going to be our truth guy. And this red over here represents grace. So, Caleb, I want you to come over here, and you're going to be representing our grace. Because, what's that? Yeah, you're going to have to tug of war him. Just a second. Here, wait, wait, wait. Let's, let's make sure that this is centered. First service, somebody had Converse's on, those shoes, and just could not plant his feet on the stage. <laughs> Picked the wrong shoes for today. Um, but in our lives, what happens is that we want to have grace towards people. We want to show kindness, love, accept everybody, welcome everyone, and give them hugs and make them feel good. But then we also have truth in our lives, and we're like, well, this is the way to live, and this is the best way to live, and if you're not doing that or if you're using that substance or living that way, that's wrong. This is the truth. And as followers of Jesus, we really struggle with this. We want to show people grace. We also want to hold firm to the truth. So how do we deal with that? So I want you guys to, to pull. See, let's see who can win on this. Okay, wait. Let's get it in the center. Okay, one, who, who, who thinks Luke's going to win? Anybody cheer, cheer for Luke? Let's get some cheers for Luke. Okay, who's going to cheer for Caleb over here? <laughs> hey, he's going to throw it. Okay, one, two, three. Oh, oh, it's hard to grip with the feet. Okay, see it going back and forth here? Oh, okay, I think we have a winner. Luke is the winner, thank you. Can everybody give Luke and Caleb a hand? <laughs> okay, you guys are good. You guys can head down. Doesn't that feel like that way as as a follower of Jesus? It feels like we're getting tugged one way or the other, right? 
There, there's the truth of God. This is what's right. This is how the best way to live. This is what you're supposed to do. And over here, we want to have grace and kindness and acceptance to everyone. We want to welcome people just as they are and love them. And man, is it hard to tell people that they're not living the way they're supposed to, right? It's so hard. We get pulled one way and then the other and then back and forth. And here's the thing. Most of us are good at one or the other. Let's just go ahead and admit it. All of us as individuals and especially as followers of Jesus, usually one of us, we lean towards one way or the other and we're almost imbalanced with it. Okay, those of you who are the truth person, you know exactly what God's law says. You know what the rules are and how you're supposed to live. And when you're talking with another person, you can just kind of smell it on them, whether they're sinning or not. You know, and it's hard for you to even keep your face from showing it. Right. Kind of look down at people. You're going to get those comments that come out of the side of your mouth like "Mm, you're wearing what? Um, you know, that, that kind of comment that, that just kind of slips out unbidden because you're a truth person. How could you do that? How could you be doing that? Okay. And then there's other people in here who are the grace people. You're the, you, you're hanging out with everyone. You invite everyone over to your home. When you do have a party at your house, you want to make sure everyone feels included. You're, you're the, you know, we want to include everyone. We want to love everyone. We want to make sure everybody feels okay. If somebody says an offensive comment, you're going to go out of your way to apologize on behalf of that other person who said the comment. You know, and then I don't know if I want to tell the person who said the offensive comment because what if I offend them? You know, you're the grace person. Okay, you know what I'm talking about? So here's the thing. Most of us are good at one or the other. But we have to have both. If we want to stay here in this middle part which is good, we need to have both in our lives. And that's what we're going to see in this message and in this series because Jesus teaches us and shows us a better way. That's with both grace and truth because it's in the person of Jesus, in following Jesus, and in turn how our church should be a place where grace and truth collide. And yes, there's a tension there. But both are so important and critical. So um, throughout this series, whichever one you are, I want you to think, okay, I'm a truth person. How can I be more grace-filled? If you're a grace-filled person, how can I be more truth-filled? So that's what we're going to talk about today. And if you have a Bible, go ahead and open it with me to John chapter 8. We're going to be in one short story today as we look at the life of Jesus because I think he does show us a better way. Instead of falling on one side or the other of grace or truth, he shows us a better way. And this uh, chapter that we're looking at, John chapter 8, verse 1. We're actually going to start in verse 53 of chapter 7. And if you're going there in your Bibles, you might be shocked to see that there's these big brackets there. Or these, there's a line there in your Bible. And it says in parentheses or in brackets, this passage was not in the original manuscripts. <gasps> you seen that? Sometimes that shocks us. What the heck does that mean? I'm going to go real quick over this. I actually love this subject, so I'll be more than happy to talk with you later if you have questions about this. But actually, what's interesting is that this story, these just short uh, 12 verses, um, occurs in five different places in the manuscripts that we have. Because the Bible is written down by people. We have all these different manuscripts, thousands and thousands of them. And in some of them, this story, in, mo- in the majority that have this story, it occurs in this place in John. But there's also two other locations in John where it's, people have tried to put it in. There's another two locations in the Gospel of Luke that people have tried to put it in. So what scholars basically think that this story probably wasn't original to this part of John. However, almost all those scholars agree that it was an original story. So this is almost this original story that was passed around about the life of Jesus. And people didn't know where where it belonged in the other gospels. So I think that's fascinating, right? But that's basically all I'm going to say for right now. I don't know, you might not even know this, but there are thousands of manuscripts that tell the story of the life of Jesus. And there is only one other place in all of the New Testament that has more than two verses where something like this happens. The very end of the Gospel of Mark. Everything else, it's like we have these thousands of examples of it being in the Bible. So we can trust this book. It's good. It's good. It's God's word. But this story is, is one of the most beloved stories of Jesus as we look at it. And I think in it we see this example of grace and truth colliding. And I think you guys are going to love this story if you haven't heard it. So we read in verse 53 of chapter 7. Then they all went home, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. At dawn he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him and sat down to teach them. He sat down to teach them. Okay, so I just want to stop there for a second. So we don't know who they are, once again, because we don't know where necessarily in the New Testament that fits, but it was probably some group of people that he was teaching. That's what he did. In all his ministry and all his years that he was teaching people, he taught people. 
There were big crowds that came around him, small crowds, huge crowds, and they all went home, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Now, I think this is significant because this is a place that we see Jesus go other times in the Gospels because he would go there to pray, to kind of get away from it all. So I'm going to give you a special bonus point today for free. If you guys didn't know you're getting a free bonus point today, you need to find your Mount of Olives. Okay, think about it. If Jesus, who is God's son, has this perfect relationship with the Father in heaven, if he had to get away from it all to think clearly, to pray, and to just kind of get away from the crowds and prepare him for what's coming, you need to too. You need to too. So you need to have your Mount of Olives. Where's that place that you're going to go to kind of get away from the crowds, get away from the busyness of life? Man, Jesus was busy, busy. People were tracking him down. He couldn't have a moment of rest unless he left by himself. And we know from other elsewhere in the Gospels that that's the Mount of Olives. That's where he went to pray like all night long. The night he was betrayed, he was there in the Mount of Olives praying all night. So this is where he'd go to just kind of clear his head away from it. So where, my question is to you, where is your Mount of Olives? Where's your place that you go? It could be in your house, in your backyard, or up on a porch, somewhere that's kind of peaceful, quiet, that you can have solitude for a little while, even a few hours. Maybe it's somewhere outside your house. Maybe you need to drive the mountains. Maybe you can find a place here in the city. I have a place, and I'm not going to tell you where it is because I don't want you to show up. (laughs) Uh, But I do have a place that I go um, every week that I can just spend time with God. Like, I need to get away. I read a book this week, and the guy said, I can't even think clearly until I've been alone and quiet for an hour and a half. Because there's so many things going on in our minds, right? We're so busy, all this stuff. So it takes time getting away from it all to think, to pray, to kind of almost recenter yourself. So that's a bonus point for you. Free of charge. Free of charge today. Bonus point. I bring out this point about the Mount of Olives, though, because I think it impacts what we're going to see here in this story. Now, I want you to visualize yourself on the Mount of Olives. You know what that looks like, right? No. (laughs) Very few of us have ever gone there. Uh, And if you have, that's awesome. I want to hear your story. But I did what uh, the rest of us do when we haven't been there is I Googled it. Okay, I just Googled, what, what is the view from the Mount of Olives? And I want you guys to see this because there's a video of what it looks like today. You see down in the countryside up this hilltop, you can look out all over the city of Jerusalem. And right there in the middle of the city is something. Does anybody know what that is? That gold dome thing? Dome of the Rock. This is a famous mosque that's built on the Temple Mount. See this area right here? That is the Temple Mount. So it's, it's a, basically a hillside. And this is where Solomon built the very first temple. And in these walls, even some of those bricks are, are from the biblical times, like when Nehemiah rebuilt the wall. You've heard that story. If you haven't, you should check it out. He rebuilt the wall. So this is kind of that, uh, part of that original wall and foundation of the temple. And then I want you to kind of see what it would have looked like in Jesus' day. It's amazing the technology we have today. That, that you can see that this is what it looks like today. And this is what it would have looked like in Jesus' day. That's pretty cool, isn't it? This is what it would have seen. So from the hillside, he would have looked down on this. You still see the city surrounding it. A lot of people living there. But there is the temple on the Temple Mount. So this is what Jesus would have seen as he's there clearing his head, thinking, praying, getting right with God and, and making sure that, that he's doing what he's supposed to do. He looks out and he sees this. And, and what I think is so interesting from this view as I thought about it is, is what you really see are a lot of walls. You notice this? There's a lot of walls. So it, to keep the city out, there's these great big walls around the temple, right? These great big walls around the temple. And that can kind of keep the rabble-rousers out. But then within the temple walls... There's this big courtyard area, and anyone could come in there. Gentiles could come in there. So even if you didn't believe in God, even if you weren't part of the Jewish people, you could go into this courtyard area. But then here in the center, if we can look at the next picture as well, this is another rendering, is there's these inner walls of the temple. You could only enter those inner walls if you were a Jew, if you believed in God and were Jewish. And then this courtyard right here, so this is off limits to any Gentile, which would be me, I'm not Jewish. You you couldn't go in this section. Do you know what this part of the temple is called? The court of women. Because women can go in here, but they can't pass that wall. Interesting, right? So anyone can go here, only Jews can go here, and women can go there, but only men can go in this section, right? And then you notice the temple itself, and you could only go within the temple if you were a priest or a Levite. 
Normal people couldn't even go in, even if you were a great, upright, righteous man. But then even within the temple itself, you can't see this, but there is an inner sanctuary, the Holy of Holies, where only the high priest could go. Interesting, right? So if Jesus were looking at the city of Jerusalem, specifically at this temple mount, he would have seen wall after wall keeping people out. Right? These people can be here, these people can be here, these people can be there, and always kind of excluding people, right? This is what Jesus then walked down the next morning at dawn when he went to the temple to teach. This is where he was. And he probably would have been teaching right here in front of the temple doors because anyone could come there on the steps to hear a rabbi, a teacher teach. And this is where Jesus is addressing a group of people. So you guys getting this? This is a context of very much us and them. You're allowed here. You're not allowed here. These people are acceptable. These are not. This is the, the, the context where Jesus is teaching in. Okay, now let's look back at our passage. So I hope this kind of gives you an idea, a framework of where Jesus was teaching. And it says that he sat down to teach them there in the temple courts. And we move ahead to verse 3. In verse 3, we read, The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. Think about that for a second. Not too long. She was caught in the middle of adultery. Okay? She was caught in the middle of adultery. Yeah, don't think about it too long. You know what I'm saying? And they took this woman, they dragged her, and made her stand before the group, before everyone, before Jesus, before um, all the different people, Jews and Greeks, anybody who's there in the temple. This is a crowd. And they said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. She's just not, a, not just a sinner. We caught her in the act. And they said, In the law of Moses, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. Okay. So who are the Pharisees and the religious leaders? Okay, it's teachers of the law. These are the religious authorities. These are the pastors, the priests, the Sunday school teachers, the denominational leaders, the people that worked for good Christian nonprofits, right? This would have been back in the day. These great leaders, outstanding people, the elders of the church. And they bring this woman and they drag her in front of everyone to stand there. Now, we have a phrase for this that parents all spare us for that, but uh, we call it uh, something shaming, right? That's what's going on to this woman, right? She's being shamed because of what she has done. Not just in the past, but she was caught in the act. They make her stand in front of everyone. They point a finger at her. They're putting the scarlet letter right on her, aren't they? They look at her. If she didn't feel ashamed enough, man, can you imagine that? Has anybody in here ever felt ashamed of the sin they've committed? Maybe you've been caught in the act. There's a few people brave enough to raise their hand. Could you imagine then being dragged in front of everyone, in front of this church? What if I dragged you in front of this church? Do you know what they, this person did? We have witnesses. And this is probably undeniable. She doesn't speak up. Nobody speaks up on her behalf. This is probably two or three witnesses caught her in the act. It's undeniable that she has sinned, that she has broken one of the Ten Commandments, committing adultery. Man, could you imagine how she would feel in that moment? Front of the temple. In front of all these people looking at her, in front of Jesus. And it says in verse 6 that they were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. So you can just get here an Admiral Akbar saying, it's a trap! Right? Because that's what's going on here. We know it's a trap because the law was very specific. If you go back and read the Old Testament law, it did say that someone who was caught in the act of adultery, if there were two or three eyewitnesses, then they would have to be executed by stoning. And this is not the type of stoning we're talking about in Colorado, right? Is tracking with me? This is getting rocks thrown at you until you die. This is capital punishment. But we know that this is a trap because, yes, that was the law, but it was also part of the law that the guy was supposed to be executed too. Where's the dude? Why didn't they drag him in front of everybody? Why does he get a pass? Where's the Me Too movement? Right? 
I mean, honestly, what are they doing? Where's the guy? And it says in the law that they were supposed to take this woman at, to the city gate because that's where like business happened. That's where proclamations were made at the, at the gate of the city, not in the temple. And yet this woman is dragged in front of Jesus. They're not really looking for justice. They're trying to make an example out of Jesus. Why? Because the Old Testament law, the truth, said that someone commit, committing adultery must be executed. Right? However, to make it more complicated, the Jews were ruled at this time by the Romans. And the Romans gave them lots of independence, but they were not allowed to carry out capital punishment. The Romans, they liked doing that. So they didn't let the Jews kill anyone. So they could punish them little punishments, but not capital punishment. So they're, these guys pulling this rope of truth over, right? That's what they're doing. Like, this is what the truth says. The truth says this person deserves execution, punishment, death. And so what are you going to do? Are you going to uphold the truth, Jesus? Or are you going to listen to the Romans and let them be in charge? God's law or man's law, Jesus? It's a trap. They're trying to entrap him so that he will say something right and wrong and he'll look like a person who doesn't care about truth. And they keep pulling this rope over and over and over towards the truth side. Do you see that? They're pulling it because these are the truth people. What's really interesting is what happens next. Jesus hears this, says that he bends down and begins to write in the dirt. The word write could mean draw or it could mean write. We don't really know. Can you see what I'm writing there? How about you? Can you see what I'm writing? No. I think that's the point. Because it doesn't record what Jesus wrote. He's just bending down and writing. And as they continue to ask Jesus, well, what are we supposed to do, Jesus? Come on, give us a decision. What's right, Rabbi? Should we execute this woman? He stands up. And he says, the one who is without sin, let him throw the first stone. And then he bends back down and writes some more. I think the silence was kind of like that. They stopped accusing him. They stopped questioning him. What, what are you going to do next? And I think it's so interesting because you guys don't know what I'm writing here, do you? And it isn't recorded anywhere what Jesus wrote. There's tons of speculation about it. All sorts of ideas. Was he drawing something? Was he writing their name? Was he writing a Ten Commandment? Was he drawing a line? Like, if you're going to throw, this is where you need to stand back so you, got, you know, can make, make sure you hit the target. You know, people have all sorts of theories about it. And I'm going to give you mine. <laughs> I don't know if it's right or not. But I can give you my theory. And I don't think it necessarily matters too much about what Jesus wrote there in the dirt. But I think it's fascinating because as I was studying this, praying about it, really trying to figure out, well, why was Jesus doing it? It says twice. He wrote, he said that statement that's so powerful, and then he went down and wrote some more. Why did he do it twice? It must have been for a reason, right? So I think it's fascinating is as I was looking through the Old Testament to try to figure this out, that there are a few different occasions where it says someone wrote with their finger. God wrote the Ten Commandments with his finger. When uh, in the time of Daniel, when there was this big judgment on the people, it says that their finger wrote on the wall this judgment that was to come. But there's only one time that I could find where someone writes in the dirt. Only one time. So I want to show you this from Jeremiah chapter 17. Jeremiah 17:13. We read, "Lord, it's a prophecy. Lord, you are the hope of Israel. All who forsake you will be put to shame. Those who turn away from you will be written." In the dust, because they have forsaken the Lord, the spring of living water. Only time that someone's written in the dirt. And in fact, this was originally written in Hebrew, but in Jesus' day, people used a Greek translation of the Bible, just like we use an English translation of the Bible. And in the Greek translation, that word dust is the exact same word as we see in John chapter 8 when Jesus begins to write in the dirt, in the dust. It's the same word. Fascinating, I think. So I think Jesus here is referring to Jeremiah 17, and it's kind of an obscure reference, and I think that's why people, at first, they kept 
challenging Jesus. What, what does the law say? What are you going to do? Are you going to execute her? Because she's just writing in the dust. They're not used to this. But then when he speaks and then does it again, I think it reminded these men, these religious leaders. They knew the Old Testament. They had it memorized, most of them. And what's really fascinating is just a few verses back in Jeremiah 17. It's a very popular verse. I memorized it as a kid. The heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart and examine the mind to reward each person according to their conduct, according to what their deeds deserve. So Jesus, I think, is referencing this, kind of an allusion to this idea that if you don't do what's right, if you have turned your back on God, God will write your name in the dust. And if your name is written in the dust, it's gone, right? A rain comes or wind comes, all of a sudden it's gone. But that's a lot different than your name being written in the book of life, right? It's permanent. And then in this context of God being the one who does not just look at your deeds, but examines your heart and your mind. Because where does sin start? It starts in your heart. Starts in your mind, and then as that sin kind of boils up, it begins to come out in your life and actions, in words, in the way that you act. That's what sin is, right? It's not just what you do, it's what you think or feel. It can be sinful as well. In fact, Jesus said something about this particular sin that the Pharisees came to him in John chapter 8. Do you know what Jesus said about adultery? Matthew chapter 5. You have heard it that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. See, it starts in your mind. It starts in your heart, Jesus is saying. He reminds them of this passage. Sin starts in the heart. That's what God is examining. Not just whether you have been caught in the act. Have you thought it? I think Jesus is subtly reminding these men, because they were men there, Yeah, you might not have been caught in the act of adultery, but have you ever undressed a woman in your mind? Have you ever thought about what you would do to that woman? And guess what happens to every single one of those guys as they're reminded this? Let's read it back in John chapter 8. It says, At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time. The older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. This is all happening as Jesus is drawing there in the dust, one by one. I think the older men, because they were a little more humble, they were willing to admit, yeah, how could I be the one to stand here and throw a stone at this woman for her adultery when I have committed adultery in my heart? They walk away one at a time until no one is left. Jesus stands up. He straightens up and asks her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Wow. We love this story, right? It's powerful because Jesus, we don't even need to know what he's writing or drawing, but just somehow with his words and his actions, he reminds all of these men that they have sinned first. In just this area of adultery, let alone all the other areas of their life with sin. Not one of them could stand there to be the judge to condemn this woman. They all had to walk away. And then Jesus says these powerful words, then neither do I condemn you. What's amazing is that Jesus was left. He actually had never committed adultery in his heart. He had never sinned in thought, word, or deed. He was perfect, and yet he declares Neither do I condemn you. Do you know what this is? Forgiveness. It's grace. It's grace saying, I forgive you. You're not condemned. You're not going to face any judgment for this. You're not, I forgive you. You have committed this act. You've been caught in the middle of it. You deserve condemnation according to the law. And yet I offer forgiveness and grace and acceptance. When they were trying to shame you, I welcome you. When they were trying to condemn you, I forgive. 
show kindness and love. That's amazing, isn't it? It's amazing that Jesus would do this. And that's why we love this story, right? But Jesus didn't stop there. He says something next. A lot of people stop there, but he, but he says this in the very end of verse 11. He says, go now and leave your life of sin. Here's this grace. I forgive you. No more condemnation. But you were sinning. It's time to stop. It's time to repent. And Jesus holds grace and truth together. Do you see that? Do you see that, what Jesus is doing? He's saying, go now and sin no more. You were sinning. You're condemned. He doesn't say, oh, it wasn't that big of a deal. What happens in the privacy of a home between consenting adults? That's okay. He doesn't say that, does he? He says, go now and sin no more. We don't like that word sin, but Jesus is saying it's the truth. There is sin. There is wrong. There is things that even if our society says they're okay, they're wrong. Guess what? I have forgiveness and grace for you anyways. I know you were caught in the act. You have shame and guilt upon you, and I want to remove it from you. But go and sin no more. See how he's holding both those in tension? Now, this is so hard for us because our society wants us to go one way or the other. They want us to push and pull over here. Grace, we need to accept everyone and say everybody's okay. Include everybody all the time, always, no matter what they've ever done. Okay, yes. Sometimes society's like, no, you can only stand on the truth. You can't speak anything bad about people. You better recycle and do what's right all the time or we're going to shame you. you know, did you know that? We shame people in our culture on Twitter. That's the temple courts, right, of our day. Our culture wants us to pull one way or the other, but we cannot do that. We must always hold on to both of these. Rick Warren talks about this, and he said that our culture has accepted two huge lies. The first is that if you disagree with someone's lifestyle, you must fear or hate them. The second is that to love someone means you agree with everything they believe or do. Both are nonsense. You don't have to compromise convictions to be compassionate. You can hold on to both, to grace and truth. And that's what Jesus did and what we must do as well. We must do as well. So I want to do a little math this morning. You guys ready for some math? I know some of you kids are like, what? I thought it was summer break. Some of you adults are like, I'm done with math. It's, it's going to be simple for you. It's going to be simple, math. Here's the first equation. Grace minus truth equals chaos. If you're pulling on this side over here, this is the grace side, the red. If you're only having grace, no truth, you pull all the way to that. It's chaos. It really is. I want you to think about it in the context of an adoption. There's a young boy in the foster care system, all sorts of issues, getting passed from one family to the next. He's disobedient. He doesn't want to go to school, and he lights fires a lot. But a family sees this boy and says, we love you. We want to welcome you into our home and adopt you as our child. You are ours. What is that? That's grace. That's beautiful. You don't deserve it. That's what grace is, really, undeserved kindness. Saying, I'm going to make you my own even though you have a bad track record. Even though nobody else wants you, I want you. That's beautiful grace, isn't it? But imagine that same family saying, you're welcome into our family. You are our child. But we don't have any rules here. If you don't want to go to school, don't go to school. If you want to light fires, well, here's some matches. It's chaos. It's crazy. And it makes the people in that fearful. Did you know kids actually like having some boundaries and rules? It makes them feel safe. They need to know we're out of bounds. So if you are just welcoming the child and say, do whatever you want, you know, it's fine if you don't want to. That's terrible. You want this child to learn and grow and become more obedient so that this child can, can raise up and be a person in, in the world that's, you know, a good citizen, a good family member. And if you only have grace without truth, it's chaos. However, the opposite is just as bad. Second equation, truth minus grace equals cruel. It's cruel. Here's the thing. If, if you're pulling over here on the truth side and you're looking at this child, you want to adopt him, you need a kid, you want a kid in your family, and you're saying, 
I've seen your track record. I've talked with your social worker. You've got to clean yourself up. You've got to change your habits, start getting back in school, and once you've done well and been obedient for six months solid, then we'll adopt you. Maybe. That's cruel, right? There's no grace there. It's judgmental. It looks down on people. I mean, that's, that's not fun either. That's not good. If you, have, if you have truth without grace, it's cruel. It's judgmental. It's arrogant. It's prideful. What we want is somewhere in the middle, right? And that's why this is the best equation, our big idea today. Grace plus truth equals love. We want to be more loving people, a more loving society, a more loving church. Well, it takes both of these. We can't just say, hey, you know, we, we'll accept you. Awesome. We, we need to accept people. We need to welcome people no matter who they are, what they've done, what they're doing. We love them. We show them grace. But yet we don't say, do whatever you want. It's fine. Find your own way and let them destroy themselves and others. That's chaos. Neither do we say, this is the only way to do it. We're not even going to like you or welcome you or or be nice to you until you change. Or if you've made the the statement that you're going to follow Jesus, uh, unless you clean up your life completely, you're not even going to come over to my house. You sinner. That's, That's truth. It's judgmental. It's cruel. It's awful. We even call those people today Pharisees, don't we? Now we need both. Grace plus truth always everywhere. And I believe that Jesus showed us, taught us, modeled for us the perfect balance of this, right? In that tension. In fact, in John 1.14, it says of Jesus that the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father, full of what? Grace and truth. It doesn't say that he was truthful when he needed to be and grace-filled when he needed to be at certain times and certain people. No, it was grace and truth, full of them both. It wasn't even half and half. It was 100% and 100%. Full of grace and truth. That's what Jesus showed us, and that's how he lived his life, and we ought to as well. In fact, if we follow Jesus, I don't think there's any other way to do it. Holding both of these at the same time. Intention. Because that's the only way you can stay where you need to be. Just tracking with me. So I want you to think about it because some of you are the truth people. You're the judgmental person and you know exactly when someone's done wrong. And I don't want you to stop being truthful. I don't want you to give up your convictions. What I want you to do is add to your truth Grace. And if you're the grace-filled person, always welcoming people, you love everyone, everyone's at your house, you make everyone feel included, good. Don't stop doing those things, but add to your grace truth. It's an addition game, not subtraction. And when you do that, then you will find what true love is. And that's the love that nothing else in our world can offer. Nothing else. We, We... Tweet at people, we shame them, they're in the news, they, they lose their jobs because they're one way or the other, right? No, 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 we must hold both. Because our culture doesn't know what love is. But we do because of Jesus. See, the amazing thing about Jesus is that he was full of grace and truth. In the very beginning of the Gospel of John, do you know the first miracle that he performs? I love it, he turns water into wine. He's like, okay, the party, you thought it was over. No, 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 we're making it better. Open bar tonight. This is a grace-filled thing because he wants everyone to be included. Oh, you weren't happy to be the first hundred people at the bar. Oh, you don't get anything. No, he wants everybody to be included. He wants there to be joy and happiness. He's a God of grace. He is Jesus himself showing us full of grace, right? Do you know what he does immediately after that in chapter 2 of John? He goes into the temple. And he sees poor, being, poor people being taken disadvantage of. They're being taken advantage of. They're being ripped off by the religious people under the guise of truth. And it says that he made a whip. Now, I, I don't know what it would take to make a whip, but this took some forethought, right? He makes a whip and he goes into the temple and he flips over tables, whipping like Indiana Jones. And he says, 
My father's house is supposed to be a house of prayer, not a den of thieves. Declaring truth. Full of truth, right? This same Jesus was both. This was the Jesus who was called a friend of sinners because he hung out with prostitutes. The lowest of the low that nobody would even associate with. And he hung out with tax collectors, the rich people that everyone looked at as the ugly 1% who steals from everybody else. He spent time with both of them. He loved them. He cared for them. He served them. He was the friend of sinners. Yet it's the same Jesus who went to the Pharisees, the religious leaders, who should have known better, and he yelled at them and said that they were a brood of vipers, whitewashed tombs, that they were blind guides. Them fighting words. See, Jesus was full of grace and truth always, all the time, everywhere he went for his whole life. And that's what we have to be as well. Even when Jesus died, he was full of grace and truth. Did you know that? Because we, like the woman caught in adultery, have been caught in our sin. In deeds, but much more in thought and and mind and heart. We have sinned against God. We are found guilty. We deserve to be punished. We deserve to be executed. Those rocks that should have gone at that woman should have been leveled at us. But Jesus, though he had no sin, though he had done nothing wrong and committed no crime, it says that he stood condemned, an innocent man. But he did that to take our truthful punishment upon himself. And in that same act, full of truth, there, willing to die for us on the cross, that he extended us the great grace and mercy of God. And if we just believe in Jesus' name, that grace is ours. To forgive us of our past, of our presence, and even the terrible things we're going to do in the future. We have grace for the worst of sinners because of what Jesus did, full of grace and truth there on the cross. So if we're going to follow Jesus, we need to go and do likewise. If grace plus truth equals love, we know that that is fulfilled permanently and perfectly in Jesus. In fact, in 1 John 3.16, we read, This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. Truth, grace, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. We too must uphold grace and truth in everything we do. So I gave you this simple equation, right? That's simple math, but it's not easy. This is going to be difficult and maybe one of the most challenging things you do as a follower of Jesus to hold on to both of these at the same time without getting pulled. Because most of us have a bent one way or the other. Or we get around people and they get pulled one way or the other. Uh, and a lot of times in, in couples I find that one is one and one is the other. They kind of pull each other. That's good. We need to pull each other so that we stay right there where we need to be with the grace and the truth. But guess what? It's always going to be hard. If you're the grace-filled person, it's going to be hard sometimes to speak the truth and say, I love you, but no, that's wrong. Call sin, sin. That's what Jesus did. It's going to be hard to do it, and it may cost you some relationships. Or or if you're going to be over here on the truth side, and you're adding to it grace, there are going to be people who say, how could you hang out with that person? How could you have them in your home or share meals with them and talk with them? Maybe you're a sinner too. But guess what? That's what Jesus got accused of. Colby Kaltenbach has a great book on this subject called Messy Grace. And he says in it, when you're criticized for the things Jesus was, you know you're doing something right. If you're not criticized, then maybe it's time to re-examine what you're doing. It's going to be hard to do this. Even other Christians are going to push you. And, and I want to talk for just a minute about what it means in a church. Because we see churches that get pushed one way or the other too, don't we? You go to one church and they're like, oh, we want to include everyone. Everyone's welcome here. We're just going to do everything. You can believe whatever you want and do whatever you want. And it's chaos. And then the church falls apart because nobody believes anything. Nobody's being helped. There's no healing or forgiveness happening because everything goes. And then there's other churches that are so firm standing on the truth that we won't even let you in here until you wear the right clothes. and Play the part. And I don't want us to be people. I don't want us to be a church that is pulled one way or the other. I want us to have that tension always. We're going to feel that tension in our lives. We're going to be pulled one way and the other. We're going to feel it and it's going to hurt a little bit. It's going to be uncomfortable. But guess what? That's where you're supposed to be. Simple math, but it's not easy. But that's what we're called to. 
And I know this is going to be challenging for some of us because I want to challenge the grace people to be filled with truth. I want to challenge the, the truth people to be filled with grace. And I know that in the midst of our church, you're going to have to then be around people that you're uncomfortable with. There's going to be people sitting in the row next to you or coming into your home in a community group or you're serving alongside them and you're like, they did what? They're doing what? You know? But we want to show grace to those people, welcome them, acceptance, and love people different than us, looking different, acting different, even people with terrible sins. And you're like, how could they? We're going to show grace to those people. But we're also going to feel the tension of truth when we talk about sin, when we talk about things like hell. You're going to feel that tension. We're not going to shy from the truth here ever either. It's going to be both. It's going to be love because love is grace plus truth, right? And we want to be a loving church. That's what we're called to do. And, and I can just imagine, we've already seen lives transformed and changed because of this balance, but I want to continue to see it. We're going to see even more crazy people in here. And guess what? Let's love them. Show them grace. And proclaim the truth to them. Let's invite those people out. We're not going to wait till they get their life together. Are you kidding me? None of us have our lives together. We're going to invite them in, and that's what kind of church we're going to be. A place where grace and truth collide. You guys in? Let's pray. Lord God, this is a, it's a tough tension that we're dealing with. We're, we feel pulled in one direction or the other. Sometimes our heart, the way we've been raised, the way we've learned, it gets pulled one way or the other, Lord God. But we pray that we would not be taken off center, Lord God, but instead we'd be fixed on our center, on Jesus, who is full of grace and truth. Lord God, there on the cross that you showed us full truth and condemnation of an innocent man, but also full grace and extending grace to sinners like me, like the, the men and women and children in here who have done wrong and thought word and deed, Lord God. And we want to just bask in that grace, but also live firmly under that truth. And when we fail to live up to the truth, Lord God, that we have more grace for our lives again and again and again. Lord God, hold, help us to hold on both as individuals and as a church and let us be a beacon of light then for this world to see how good you are. Because grace and truth, true love, is never found in anyone else, nothing else except Jesus. And Lord God, for the person here today that's struggling under the shame and guilt of their sin from their past or even their present, Lord God, I pray that they would feel your grace and mercy more than ever before right now, knowing that they are loved. And the truth is, if they call on your name right now, they will be forgiven and saved. Lord God, you call us to something so much better where grace and truth collide. And that's where we want to be always, all the time, everywhere we go for the rest of our lives. Help us to live up to that in Jesus' name.